From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado is home to the nation's space command for the moment. What will it take to make sure the permanent headquarters are located here? Colorado's Republican Congressman Doug Lamborn joins us live. We'll ask about that effort, the National Authorization Defense Act, and whether he thinks Congress can finally agree on a pandemic relief package. Then, he led the U.S. Army's liberation of the Dachau concentration camp. Now a new series shares the story of Colorado's Felix Sparks. It isn't my time to come home yet. He asked me once, the captain. He came back. I'm not scared anymore. From the battlegrounds of the Second World War to a seat on the Colorado State Supreme Court, we'll explore the life of the liberator. Today is Colorado Gifts Day, a day of philanthropy, supporting meaningful causes across our state. Many Colorado Gives Day donors who choose Colorado Public Radio as the recipient of their gift give out of gratitude. Thank you for making it all possible. Add your support to the news and music you rely on and make a donation today on Colorado Gives Day at coloradogives.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Military efforts in space have been a priority under the Trump administration. These efforts have largely taken shape in Colorado. Peterson Air Force Base near Colorado Springs serves as the temporary headquarters for Space Command. Colorado lawmakers have been fighting to make the designation permanent, including Congressman Doug Lamborn, whose district includes the base. He joins us now to talk about Space Command and other national issues. Congressman, welcome. Congressman, are you on the line with us? Yes. Can you hear me? I can. Good to hear you. A few weeks ago, the Air Force announced the six finalists for the Permanent Space Command Headquarters, which includes Peterson Air Force Base. Peterson is already serving as temporary Space Command HQ. So what are the chances that it will be made permanent? I think we have a better shot than anyone else out there, but we can't let our guard down. We have to keep pushing hard. And I'm pleased to say that the entire delegation, both House and Senate, the governor's office, local community leaders like the mayor of Colorado Springs, we're all working together on this. And there's been great unity of effort. What will the Space Command headquarters do? It will uh, be the part of Space Force that basically gives the orders on what everyone does uh, in the entire Space Force. And I think it's critical that they be located where the work is being done. Uh, they're, if they're next door to where the warfighters are stationed and the intelligence is being gathered and the operations are being carried out, that's going to make their job a lot better. Rather than being in some remote location where they're isolated away from all the people and all the infrastructure. Now, earlier in this process, the list of possible locations included three other places in Colorado. Now it's down to just one. I know you spoke to a lot of unity of effort, but does that affect the chances that the headquarters will stay in the state? I think it actually is better for Colorado Springs because uh, with all due respect to Buckley, they didn't have as much to offer in terms of personnel and infrastructure. They, they had some good things going for them. But now that the now that we are the stronger candidate and we're out, out there by ourselves for Colorado, 
we're not divided. Our efforts are not divided, and we'll have a stronger chance. When do you expect an announcement to be made? I think, uh, as you know, they're going to do some site visits later this month and possibly make an announcement as early as next month. And again, speaking to that effort that's being made, have you been advocating for the permanent location directly to the president? I have. I've advocated to him directly and personally. I've advocated to uh, whoever is in charge of the Department of Defense. That that has changed recently. Uh, and more specifically, the woman who is the secretary of the Air Force, because she's the ultimate decision maker. And I've talked to her on a number of occasions. And there's been some speculation that President Donald Trump might reward loyalty instead of choosing a location and instead choose a location in a state that voted for him, say Texas or Florida. What do you make of that possibility? And do you think your own personal relationship with the president could factor into this decision? Well, um, there are some powerful states out there that have, frankly, a stronger political base than we do. You know, they have more people. And, and maybe they voted for the, the president. But they, when it comes to the nuts and bolts of the actual decision, uh, we have far and away the most to offer. We have the people working here who are already doing the job. We've spent billions of dollars setting up the infrastructure that's here right now. And to move it somewhere else would take precious time, which would distract from addressing the threat. It would be very expensive. Uh, it'd be disruptive. And, and frankly, a lot of people wouldn't want to move to some of these other places if they're already in Colorado. So um, all the reason behind assessing this says it should stay here. And I hope and uh, that that's stronger than any um, of these fleeting political considerations. You mentioned time and money. Do you have a sense of how much time and money it would take to transition to a new location? Well, we're working on that right now. We're putting the, the list together of the facilities. But here's one example. Um, the Consolidated Space Operations Facility uh, to replace the old uh, uh, Consolidated Space Defense Center. Uh, that's going to be $148 million. It's gonna, they're going to break ground in March. That's where the Department of Defense works together with the intelligence community for the first time ever to work together on addressing the space threats. Okay, you, you want that near your headquarters. Uh, and it, right now it's at Schriever, and the, the new facility I just mentioned would be, the permanent facility would be at Schriever as well. Uh, that's $148 million. Okay, that's just one example of the kinds of operation and in infrastructure that's going to be done in the Pikes Peak region regardless, and it makes all the sense in the world to keep the headquarters near where that type of war fighting is taking place. I'd love for you to paint us two pictures of local effect. What would it mean for your district to have the permanent space command headquarters? And on the flip side, what would it mean if Peterson were to lose it? Well, there would be spinoff for the entire state of Colorado, especially the front range. You know, we have so many space, uh, jobs already in the the Colorado area. In the Pikes Peak region currently, we have 250 aerospace and defense companies. Many of them are intimately involved with space operations. Um, that's over 100,000. I think it's about 111,000 employees 
in those companies and $7 billion of annual revenue. Uh, and that may that may include active duty, uh, that 111,000. So uh, that's a $7 billion uh, uh, sum when you add it all together. That's huge for Colorado. Uh, think of the money from that that comes from – that would go into income tax collections to go into our state education system, for instance, or property taxes to support schools. Um, that, that would be – uh, that would be so huge. Uh, some of that would stay, even if headquarters were elsewhere. But the kind of accelerated growth we've seen, the explosive growth in this area that, that we've seen locally, uh, would taper off. It wouldn't grow as fast. And we'd even maybe lose some of the jobs. So it would have a big hit economically if it were to go elsewhere. Of course, we are in the twilight days of the Trump administration. Is it possible that the Biden administration of Congress or Congress could change the headquarters location in the future? Well, uh, we will cross that bridge when we get to it. Fair enough. Uh, Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper said last year that he heard complaints from other representatives that the selection process was unfair and not transparent. Do you agree with that assertion? No, I don't agree with that assertion. I, th- I think that that was just sour grapes from people who uh, didn't rise to the initial list because they didn't merit it in the first place. So, you know, sour grapes. Right now, Congress is working on the National Defense Authorization, Authorization Act that funds the military. However, President Trump is threatening to veto the bill because he wants it to include a repeal of Internet Liability Shield. This is liability shield that means that companies like Facebook and Twitter can't be sued for what their users post on their platforms. Do you agree with the president on this issue? Well, I think we should really look at that issue, but I think we should look at it separately from the NDAA. It's really not it wasn't part of the discussions going into conference committee. And it's frankly a totally new topic that we'd be taking up after all of the committee work and floor work in the House and Senate on this bill. Um, I'm sympathetic to his argument. I think uh, big social media, big tech has uh, gotten a free ride in terms of some of the toxic things that are on their platforms. And, um, you know, they, 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 they have basically total immunity. And I think they need to have a little more responsibility. So, so I think it's a topic that we should discuss. But but this is not really the time and place to discuss it. Since you think that Internet Liability Shield shouldn't be a part of the NDAA, if the president were to veto it, would you vote to override? Hey, that's a great question. But I, once again, I'm going to cross that bridge when we get to it. So you don't know yet whether you would vote to override? Right. Uh, it, it, right now, that's hypothetical and may never even happen. We'll see. Currently, the NDAA calls for $740.5 billion in military spending. Included in that spending are a lot of military construction projects in your district. $43 million for Fort Carson, $15 million for Peterson, and $88 million for Schriever Airport Base. What kind of projects would that money pay for? Well, and I referenced one of those earlier. Uh, It's Avery, right? Yes, it is. Uh, Yeah, Avery, I... I referenced one of those earlier of groundbreaking for the CSOF, Consolidated Space Operations Facility, is going to take place in March. They can't spend the entire 148 in one year, so that 
eighty-eight million in figure that you cited. I think that that's roughly half. They can bite off maybe half of that, uh, and the next half would come the following year. But that that's huge. That's huge for our national security. You know, I'm, I, I don't say that parochially, but it is great uh, locally for the jobs and the prestige and the uh, uh, importance that it brings to the Pikes Peak region for space operations. And what would be the effect in your district if the president were to veto the NDAA and there were no override? Um, we'd have to, st- basically, we'd have to start all over in January and president, uh, whoever the president is at the time, whether it's Joe Biden or whoever, uh, would have that the option to have a a big say in how it takes place. We starting from scratch would be a real big lift, and uh, I, I hope it doesn't come down to that. Moving to other issues, it looks like another federal COVID nineteen relief bill is around the corner. What do you hope will come out of the negotiations? Well, Avery, I would like to see uh, us take the money that's been appropriated but not already spent and dedicate that first. I think that's about $450, $440 billion. That's a huge chunk of money rather than borrowing new money. And uh, so, so whatever the total amount is, let's make that the beginning tranche of money. And then also I want to see liability protection for small business and nonprofits and everyone else out there. You know, the there are trial lawyers who are threatening to sue everybody under the sun if, if someone under their roof came down with COVID. And that doesn't really probably make sense to most people because this virus is something that, uh, you know, has a way of infiltrating whatever, no matter what you do. And yet, um, if you found a sympathetic jury, you could basically destroy businesses with, with a huge judgment. So, um, There needs to be liability protection also. And then the last thing is there are some mismanaged states out there and cities out there that want to get bailed out. And and why should people of Colorado send their hard-earned dollars to New York or Illinois or states like that that are in New Jersey that are mismanaged and uh, want a bailout from other taxpayers instead of uh, living – within the means that they already have. Uh, I don't want Colorado taxpayers to be on the hook for that. These negotiations, they've been stalled out for a long time now. What are you doing to get them across the line? Uh, I'm actually waiting and seeing. I don't, I'm not sure we need a relief package right now because of the bad things that I just mentioned that would be in it, you know, bailing out uh, mismanaged cities and states. However, uh, if it, comes out of committee and comes to the floor, I will be making the point that, okay, if we're going to do this, let's have the liability protection on the positive side. Uh, let's use money that's already been appropriated rather than new money on the positive side. And if we, for instance, if we send a check out to uh, everybody in the country, um, maybe we can focus that on people that are unemployed, uh, people that, you know, there are people in government there are people in many companies that have not skipped a beat. Uh, they have not missed a beat whatsoever. And do they need the $1,200 or whatever a check would be the same as that single mom who uh, has to watch her kids at school and uh, because they're doing school at home and she doesn't have work and has no income? You know, that's the person that needs the check not everybody under the sun. So I want to focus the dollars where it's really needed. Congressman, 
we're out of time, so we're going to have to wrap up here. I want to thank you so much for your time. Avery, you're welcome. Uh, Let's do this again sometime. All right. That was Congressman Doug Lamborn, who represents Colorado's 5th Congressional District. Coloradans of South Asian descent are less than 1% of the state's population, but their political voices are growing. Reporter Vignesh Ramachandran says that hearing Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's victory speech was momentous for many of these Coloradans. And to the woman most responsible for my presence here today, my mother, Shamala Gopalan Harris, who is always in our hearts. Uh, When she came here from India at the age of 19, she maybe um, didn't quite imagine this moment. It's a moment Maha Mahalingam didn't imagine either. Mahalingam lives in Aurora and moved to the U.S. 40 years ago. She came from India to begin graduate school, just like Harris's mom. I came to the U.S. when I was 22. And to think of that 19-year-old coming with so much determination and courage, seeking a new life in a new land. Mahalingam thinks of Harris's mom marching in Berkeley in the 60s for social justice. It's just, I feel a sense of solidarity with this woman. Mahalingam is excited about the representation Harris brings to American politics. 34-year-old Coloradan Indra Raj feels the same way. Obviously, it's a huge deal to see a woman of South Asian descent being represented in the White House. Indra heard the election win for Harris and Joe Biden through a text message and then immediately turned on the TV in her home in Boulder. You know, I've grown up just not seeing a lot of South Asian representation in the media, in politics, anywhere. And to see that happening in the White House, I mean, the fact that the term South Asian is now something people like understand (laughs) is kind of a big deal. It's a big deal because Asian Americans as a whole are the fastest growing racial or ethnic group of voters in the country. In Colorado, Indian Americans are the largest subset of South Asians, and voter engagement is finally catching up, though representation is still far behind. Harris's win made Indra think about her mom, Jotsna, who also lives in Boulder and did run for public office. Jotsna says Harris's win is an encouragement for others to do the same. And what I hope to see from it is an even greater engagement of people of Indian origin in politics here in America. When I came to live here in 1976, Indian immigrants like us were more focused on their, uh, you know, their jobs, their careers, establishing themselves in this country. And they were fairly apolitical. And I think it shows the maturing of our uh, group that we have now entered politics. Jotsna has run twice for Boulder City Council, but lost both times. I didn't make it, but it allowed me to really understand my community and to get very engaged with its problems and its issues. And I think I really enjoyed it. But there's only been one legislator of Indian origin in the state house. Janak Joshi is a Republican from Colorado Springs. He served from 2011 until he lost re-election in 2016. There haven't been any others since. 
and the Democratic Party and its allies are among those actively trying to get more Asian Americans into politics in Colorado. Susmita so Saha helps lead the party's outreach here. I like to see more engagement from the South Asian community. That is definitely lacking. When I look at New York or New Jersey, it's unbelievable in the involvement of the South Asian community. And I really wish that for the state of Colorado. The biggest opportunity might be in the younger generation. J.D. Mungit, whose family is from Punjab, has served in his hometown city council in Lafayette for almost three years. He teaches in Boulder Valley schools and got involved in the city council when he was only 22. A lot of um, South Asians are expected to be a doctor or a lawyer or a business owner, right? I think what it takes, too, is it takes a little bit of time for, for our community to realize, like, how influential and how important these positions are and how that there's more to your contribution to society as, aside from the prestige of your job or the money that you make. And I think that's slowly becoming a lesson for our older generation. The older generation also got more involved in voter outreach this election than ever before, urged on by groups like They See Blue. It's a national organization to encourage South Asian Americans to help elect Democrats. They found before the election that only 37% of South Asian Democrats were voting in Colorado. So they amassed an army of aunties and uncles along with their kids. Indira Dugirala is one of the Colorado group's organizers. I think because uh, South Asians are reaching out to fellow South Asians, um, there was already a certain amount of trust. From kitchen tables, living rooms, and home offices, they see blue volunteers wrote letters and made calls, often to young or inactive voters, sometimes chatting in native Indian languages. They asked a lot of questions. They often would say, wow, nobody, I've been living here for 40 years, but nobody has ever called me from either party. And Or they would say, well, we hear all of these things on um, on TV or newspapers, and what is a, a, a reliable source that I could use? The group is now planning outreach to about 10,000 South Asians in the state who are still not registered to vote. They see Blue and local party officials like Saha want to keep the momentum that Harris's election started building in 2020 going. They have a message for Colorado leaders. Hey, South Asian population does exist. Yeah, we have different names that are not Americanized, but please recognize us. We are a voice. A voice they think can grow both as voters and as candidates. For CPR News, I'm Vignesh Ramachandran. When we come back, the Colorado man who was known as the Liberator. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner from Colorado Matters. Every year at this time, we take inspiration from Judy Garland, who opened her 1963 Christmas show with these words. Just make yourselves comfortable. I mean, as a matter of fact, consider yourself at 
Join us Wednesday from the comfort of your home for music and conversation with artists across the state. It's the first ever Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza TV special. Sponsored by First Western Trust. Tickets at CPR.org holiday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. He led the U.S. Army's liberation of the Dachau concentration camp during World War II, and now a new Netflix series tells the story of Colorado's Felix Sparks. My dearest Mary, when I left you to come over here, I was scared of losing you. I'm scared of not coming back. I'm scared of dying. Let's go! But I began this war with a group of men. Hang in there, Captain. Men who I owed a debt to. Go! Go! Captain, you're not ready for discharge. You walk out of here, you'll be AWOL. They would send me home, sir. I ought to be with my men. Mary, I don't expect you to understand. It isn't my time to come home yet. He lost me once, the captain. He came back. I'm not scared anymore. The Liberator is based on a book by the same name, written by former journalist and World War II historian Alex Kershaw. Alex joins us today to talk about the life of Felix Sparks and his significance in Colorado history. Welcome, Alex. Great to be with you. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Tell us about the photograph that you found that drew you to write about Felix Sparks. Yeah, I was researching a story about liberation, and I was literally went on Google and tapped in uh, liberator concentration camp. And when I came to Dachau, I saw this it was a really astonishing image of um, a guy uh, around about six foot tall. He's holding his pistol in the air and he's firing it. And behind him are a bunch of uh, dead and wounded SS soldiers in the coal yard at Dachau. And the caption said, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Felix Sparks, after 500 days of combat, fires his pistol in the air to stop his men from massacring the SS at Dachau. And it was absolutely, I was like, wow, who the the hell is that guy? So that image was the the start of my odyssey, if you like. And it was a a really remarkable image because it showed a a moment in one man's life that was captured, that showed pure integrity, showed exactly who this guy was. And uh, it was sort of miraculous that that image was there to remind us of this great Colorado and you actually met Sparks in 2007. How did you come to meet him and write his story? Um, I was invited by a guy called Jack Hallowell, who lived in uh, Lakewood, um, just you know, as a suburb of, of that beautiful city, Denver. And I came out in 2006, and Sparks was literally on his deathbed. He was died only a few months later. He was uh, 89 years old. And um, I mentioned, managed to spend a couple of days with him, and he was a very powerful, forceful figure. I had been very lucky to interview quite a few World War II veterans, real warriors, people that did amazing things in World War II. But Sparks had a kind of grit and a power and a moral moral weight to him that was greater than anybody I've, I've met from World War II. Let's talk about Sparks' life. He grew up poor in Arizona. As a young adult, he hopped trains when he didn't have a roof over his head. Did poverty have something to do with why he joined the Army? Yeah, he was an actually, uh, you know, he was a very, very smart guy. He wanted to be a lawyer and didn't have the money to go to college back in at the height of the Depression. And so, you know, his dad took him down to the local rail yard one day and literally said, 
best of luck. See if you can find a job. And he, he rode the rails, as you said, for two years. Ended up in San Francisco in 1936, walking along Market Street. He'd been sleeping rough for quite a while. And a, an army recruiter said, hey, bud, you know, you want to join the army? Get, put a, have a, a roof over your head and three square meals. And Sparks was, no way, I'm not going to do that. And he walked on 50 yards and he told me that he, he went back and he said, yeah, why not? So <laughs> he, uh, that's how he ended up joining the army. And in those days, back in the mid-1930s, Believe it or not, you could if you joined the army, you could you had a choice of where you wanted to be based. So Sparks chose Hawaii, and we spent two very very uh, very nice years in Hawaii in the late thirties. But anyway, when Pearl, Pearl Harbor occurred, and the anniversary was yesterday, um, anybody that served in the U.S. Army was immediately brought back in, and Sparks found himself as an officer in the 157th Infantry Regiment of the 45th Infantry Division, the Thunderbird Division. That simple why not to a recruiter, it turned into 500 days in combat in World War II. Yep. That's an exceptionally long time for someone to be in combat during that war. The U.S. Army did a study that showed many soldiers suffered psychiatric breakdowns after 200 days. But Sparks didn't. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, well, uh, whether he did or not, the the fact is that uh, a lot of guys, a lot of uh, really amazing human beings um, spent longer on the line uh, in World War II than 200 days. Now, the U.S. Army did a very important psychiatric report in the fall of 1944 because they were very worried about combat fatigue or breakdown, what we call you know massive PTSD these days. And they basically concluded that anybody, there was no such thing as an Iron Man, a Superman. Didn't matter what background you were from, whatever your physical, mental abilities you could only take so much before you would be mentally degraded, before you would go insane, before you would just basically be broken in a very fundamental way, whether physically, your nervous system, or your mind. But the fact is that what's so amazing about the World War II narrative and why we do call them, many of these guys and women, the greatest generation is because they carried on. So Sparks carried on, even though he was breaking, even though at some points he did break, he did lose his cool. He did do things that had he been, uh, you know, had, had he not been in hell for so long, he wouldn't have done. But the point is he carried on, that he carried on right to the very end. He started at the very beginning when Americans began to liberate Europe on the 10th of July, 1943. He was involved in four amphibious invasions. The odyssey that he completed was over 2,000 miles long from Sicily to the gates of Dachau. And he carried on. He kept there right to the end and became the American officer who led the first Americans into Dachau on uh, April 29th, 1945. So it was that spirit, that courage, that toughness, that determination, that that will to win and survive and carry on that I was in awe of and that we should always, always remember. And that's an incredible amount of pressure for one person to carry on such a long journey. Sparks led a battalion of white, Latino, and Native American soldiers why was that significant back then? Uh, because uh, America back then was an extremely racist society. Uh, you know, in Fort Sill in Oklahoma, when Sparks arrived there um, at the beginning of the war in you know, early 1942, um, there were signs on the bars uh, outside the, the camp that said no Indians and no Mexicans. Um, so... Blacks couldn't serve in regular army units. That America was segregated, of course. 
Um, but uh, remarkably, if you look at the time and you look at the com- complexion of the U.S. military, the 157th Infantry Regiment that Felix Sparks belonged to was a very diverse, highly integrated and very effective uh, unit that comprised cowboys, uh, poor white guys from from the uh, the Dust Bowl, a lot of Mexican-Americans, and a, an enormous amount, relatively speaking, of Native Americans. And that's because the 45th Infantry Division sourced its soldiers from the Southwest. So it was Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, that part of the United States. So believe it or not, the, the 45th Thunderbird Division, aptly named, had more than 1,500 Native Americans from over 40 tribes belonging to that one division, which was the largest number of Native Americans in any combat division in World War II. So Sparks led these guys. He led Mexicans that could barely speak English, Mexicans that had to get their best buddies to write their letters home for them because they couldn't write English. He led Braves, the bravest of the brave, the Native Americans who had suffered enormous genocide within the last couple of generations. And he molded them into a very, very effective fighting unit. Um, One of the Interesting anecdotes that I came across that Sparks talked about quite a bit that stayed in his mind was that when he first went into combat in September of 1943 in Italy as a company commander with 200 guys under his uh, in, in his charge, he said there were quite a few Mexican-Americans and he'd grown up in Arizona where there'd been a lot of racism and where the, uh, high unemployment meant that if you were a Mexican-American, you were very much at the back of the line for a job or any opportunities. And he wondered to himself, he said, are these guys going to die for Uncle Sam? Are these guys that have been treated so, so badly? Why would they fight and die 3,000 miles from home for America when it's, America's given them nothing? It's treated them very, very badly. And he worried. He thought, are they going to run away? Are they, are they going to really fight like the rest of us? And they did. And he said that, was, that left a very strong impression on him. And what it, what it meant to him was that many Americans, even though they were disadvantaged, even though they came from minorities, they were fighting for an ideal. They were fighting for their idea of America. They were fighting for their community back in America. They might not have might not have fought for some notional propagandistic idea of what America stood for, but they were fighting for the America that they knew and they loved and they came from and they represented. So I think The Liberator as a narrative, as a story, and on Netflix, what it shows is it, it doesn't show a white face of victory in World War II. It shows the true American victory, the true America, a diverse America. And I think uh, it's not that's not being done enough. Let's spend a moment talking about what he and his troops did in Dachau. That's what he's most known for from the war. Can you describe how he came to liberate that concentration camp? Uh, he was made a, a task force commander at the end of the war. So sort of early April 1945, when the war was winding up, uh, Allied intelligence believed that Hitler was going to make a, a last stand in the Alps. And Sparks was given a task force, several hundred guys, and told that he should uh, get there as quickly as possible and try and go and capture Adolf Hitler. I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it was a big deal. It was a huge job and something that he wanted to do. And on the morning of the 29th of April, 1945, he was doing precisely that. He was moving towards Munich. And he, got, he received an order uh, very early that morning that he was to make a diversion to a, a small town called Dachau, and he had absolutely no idea what Dachau was. He didn't know what a concentration camp was. He had absolutely no idea what the hell was there. And he was actually quite angry. He, he said after the war several times that it really annoyed him that he was being diverted from what he thought was a much bigger job. Uh, but when he got to Dachau, um, 
boy, did it leave an impression. I mean, he said that the scenes that he experienced there were beyond the human mind to even begin to grapple with. It was something so surreally evil, so beyond anything that he and his men had ever seen. And they'd seen all the full barbarity, degradation, and brutalization of war. They'd seen civilians, you know, turned to pieces of flesh. They'd, they'd seen incredibly awful, damaging things that scarred them for the rest of their lives. But they'd never seen anything on the level of the horror and evil of Dachau. And I think many of the the survivors from the 157, the guys that came home, this was the abiding memory of the war. It was the, the thing that reminded them for the rest of their lives. And there are a, a few still with us today, thank God. It reminded them of why they fought reminding them of why they had to lose so many of their friends, why the journey had been so long. We're going to have to conclude there, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing his legacy. Um, Alex Kershaw is the author of The Liberator, One World War II Soldier's 500-Day Odyssey from the beaches of Sicily to the gates of Dachau. The Sand Creek Massacre and the forced removal of many tribal nations that traditionally lived in or utilized what's now Colorado are part of the state's history. Another piece of its history that's little taught in school is the 1952 Bureau of Indian Affairs-initiated program to move Native Americans off reservations and into cities, including Denver. It's part of the reason citizens of more than 200 tribal nations now call Denver home. Indigenous people on reservations were promised good jobs in cities, but the BIA had ulterior motives for the program. Here's American Public Media's Max Nesterak and his special report, Uprooted, the 1950s plan to erase Indian country. Politicians and government workers believe Native people had to assimilate into white mainstream American society for their own good. I found a radio report from an anthropologist named Ruth Underhill, who traveled through Indian country in the 1950s. Here she is interviewing a white BIA official working on the Navajo reservation named Mel Bickle. Well, I've always felt that the only real solution for the Navajo was to uh, cease to be a Navajo. I spoke with Doris Goodteacher last year about what it was like for her to participate in the BIA's relocation program and to thrive in Denver's indigenous community. You were born on the Santee Sioux Reservation in Nebraska. You moved to Denver when you were 11 years old. What do you remember about life on the reservation when you were a kid? Life on the reservation as I knew it, it was a very close-knit community. There was good memories, you know. Um, We didn't have television. We didn't have running water. Those were challenges, obviously, you know. But in the summer, my mother planted huge gardens, huge gardens, and she canned. I mean, everything was plentiful. The other thing is that my stepfather hunted, and so there was always meat, you know. I never liked venison, but there was quail and, you know, things that are like gourmet now, and then Things were focused on the Episcopal Church. What I do remember about that part of our life, though, was that it was a time when traditional practices were outlawed. And so, like I said, everything was around the church, and it was not okay to do anything traditional, like go to powwows and 
go to ceremonies and so on. I want to talk a little bit more about that later, but I want to talk also about how you came to Denver. Your family relocated to Denver in 1956. How did your parents talk about why they decided to move to Denver? My stepfather worked always as a laborer, and, you know, there was no more employment. But at that time, there was this BIA program, and my stepfather signed our family up for that. And my mother didn't want to come. My family chose Denver only because it was closest to our reservation. So I was the oldest of seven, but there were four of us when we got here. And I remember just being in awe of the buildings. And I remember it was a two-story unit that they put us in, and there was an upstairs bedroom that overlooked the city. And at night, I think me and my mom had the hardest time, and we would be looking out there, and I hated it. I, I, you know, I hated being here. But my siblings, it was an adventure because, I mean, one of the first things they experienced was flushing the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they would get flushing the toilet, flushing the toilet. They wanted to get in the bathtub because all we had on the res was a big galvanized tub and my mother heated water in. So that was a new experience. Oh, totally new. And I just remember they just thought it was great, but I, I didn't like it. What did you miss? I I missed my family. I missed the elders. I missed my grandparents. I missed my mom's friends that I was so close to. It was so foreign to me. I think there were several things that helped me personally. I was able to make friends in the little community that we lived in. And then the other thing that happened that I remember shortly after we came was St. John's Cathedral. The Episcopal bishop there took an interest in all of the Episcopalian Native people that were coming to the urban area. And so there began to be gatherings in the church at the cathedral And then the early 60s or so, that Indian Center, you know, came about and other Indian organizations. And so my mom would always say, you know, well, we may be different tribes, but we always stick together. So we became involved with the Indian community at large in the city. So I know the purpose of the Voluntary Relocation Program, the BIA wanted to assimilate American Indians. As you grew up, how did you and your family balance hanging on to your Santee Sioux identity and making friends in the Native community and fitting into Denver? Well, I think what helped us to balance that was my grandparents were still living, and we visited them 
So I think that helped. And what did your grandparents tell you about what it means to be Santisu? My grandma and my grandpa told me, never forget where you came from. After you moved to Denver, what was it like going back to the Santisu Reservation? It always had a powerful, powerful draw. And it was almost like a spiritual experience. And I always felt, upon leaving there, mixed feelings about I. it was where I was from. And I was always sad about leaving my relatives, my grandma especially. I was very, very close to her. But interestingly enough, once my grandmother died, it wasn't the same. And so she was... She was that connection. Um, I know you said your family came to Denver because your stepfather, he was looking for work. Right. Um, I'm curious what kind of work he ended up doing, and do you think your parents found what they were hoping to find in Denver and in moving here? I think they did. I think they did. My stepfather always did construction work, and my mother, she worked as a housekeeper, And she worked as a cook. But I think that what happened is as we became more assimilated to the city, and I know for me, um, as I became more assimilated to the city, I knew I would never go back there. I would never go back there to live, ever. Why is that? Well, it isn't the community that I knew. You know, the church no longer is the focal point of the community. There's a lot of high unemployment rates. There's a lot of substance abuse, domestic violence. And I say that because my own family experienced that. You know, I say now, you know, I'm, I'm not a good Indian. A lot of people talk about going back, going back, you know. But I know I could never go back. And then my mom, she used to say, one of these days I'm going to go back when I retire. But when it came, actually came down to it, she said, I know I can't ever go back and live there, mm. you know. Because things had changed. For the relocation program, I know that it's still controversial because there are certainly some positive sides that your stepdad, he found the job that he was looking for. And then there's also the obvious pain that comes with assimilation. How do you think about the program now? I think now what I've learned is that a third of us stayed A third of them went back and forth, and another third went back and never came back. Went back to the reservations. Right, and never came back. And so I think for some people it can work. And for those people that that it can work, I think what's critical is that that family learns to live in both worlds. You don't forget your culture. You always embrace your culture. You never 
escape from it. You never want to escape from it. And you want to take everything that is positive about that culture and keep that close. But at the same time, you have to live in this other world, this dominant society world. And you have grandchildren in Denver now. How do you teach them to live in both worlds? Well, I have three grandchildren. They always grew up going to powwows. They're learning. They want to learn. And like you said, powwows, they were illegal when you were growing up. I know. What was was it like to share that with your grandkids? Oh, it's been great. I mean, they love it, you know. And the first powwow I went to was in Denver. It was at St. John's Cathedral. I believe in these traditions. I believe in the stories that my great-grandmother told. I've been to Sundances now. You know, I believe in that there's good medicine and bad medicine. That's what my great-grandma used to talk about. And so those were pieces of the culture that were intertwined with the Episcopal Church. So I don't think it's a bad thing to have both those things in your life. Those are both worlds that you live in. Yes. Doris, thank you so much for sharing your story. You're welcome. Doris, good teacher, speaking with me in November of last year. She moved to Denver from the Santee Sioux Nation in 1956 as part of the Bureau of Indian Affairs Voluntary Relocation Program. That's it for Colorado Matters today. Thanks for joining us. We also hope you'll join us tomorrow for the virtual premiere of our holiday extravaganza, a night of music and storytelling. Tickets at CPR.org slash holiday. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.